morning. Let's read Genesis 2, 1 through 25. So the creation of the heavens and the earth and everything in them was completed. On the seventh day, God had finished his work of creation, so he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy because it was the day when he rested from all his work of creation. This is the account of the creation of the heavens and the earth. When the Lord God made the heavens and the earth, neither wild plant nor grains were growing on the earth. For the Lord God had not yet sent rain to water the earth, and there were no people to cultivate the soil. Instead, springs came up from the ground and watered all the land. Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. He breathed the breath of life into the man's nostrils, and the man became a living person. Then the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man he had made. The Lord God made all sorts of trees grow up from the ground, trees that were beautiful and that produced delicious fruit. In the middle of the garden, he placed the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed from the land of Eden, watering the garden and then dividing into four branches. The first branch, called the Pishon, flowed around the entire land of Havilah. There is gold. The gold of that land is exceptionally pure. Aromatic resin and onyx stone are also found there. The second branch, called the Gihon, followed around the entire land of Cush. The third branch, called the Tigris, flowed east of the land of Ashur. The fourth branch is called the Euphrates. The Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. But the Lord warned him, You may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. So the Lord God formed from the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would call them, and the man chose a name for each one. He gave names to all the livestock, all the birds of the sky, and all the wild animals. But still, there was no helper just right for him. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. While the man slept, the Lord God took out one of the man's ribs and closed up the opening. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib, and he brought her to the man. At last, the man exclaimed, this one is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken from man. This explains why a man shall leave his father and his mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Now the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. You may be seated. Good morning. My name's Gabe. I'm one of the pastors here. 
Um, it's a delight to be with you today and share God's word. And I know that was a, uh, a longer than average scripture reading. And uh, that was on purpose because, you know, I think one of the, the difficulties in the culture that we're living in is uh, that we're way too used to uh, stories that are uh, too small. And, and we get used to hearing small stories in small places if it's not, you know, in an Instagram post or something that we can watch in five minutes or less, we think it's, that's too long. And it was interesting, even preparing for this morning, I, I hesitated to read a passage that long, knowing that it would be strange for us to stand for that long and, and, and read. But I think it's a good exercise because the stories that we were made for are more, are more complex or more complicated um, than the short stories that uh, we like to read and to believe. So today I want to talk to you about this idea of, of stories, of stories that we were made for and stories that we're living in. And I don't know if you've thought of your life in that way before, but I found that through the years to be one of the most helpful ways to understand myself and to understand the people around me and relationships and to understand the culture and the world around me as well as through this lens of of story, and in fact, that's the way I've learned to read the Bible as well. Um, that was revolutionary for me, actually, after I finished seminary. I'd gone through, you know, learning to read Hebrew and Greek and um, parse verbs and preach and do all the things. And then uh, several years later, as I was teaching the scriptures to people in South Africa, I, I realized suddenly that the Bible is one story, beginning to end, Genesis to Revelation. And it's a magnificent story, but it's not a simple story. And so I want to invite us into uh, a couple of the very first stories that are told to us in the scriptures. And we read one of those today. But I want to start by telling you a bit of my own story. You know, I think that um, often we we live in in the middle of contradictory stories in our lives, don't we? Um, and maybe we don't realize that all the time, but for, for me, that uh, became a reality at about 38 years old. I'd been a Christian since I was 14, and at 14, you know, I raised my hand, and I said, Jesus, I want to I wanna follow you, and I began to be discipled and to learn what that meant to be a follower of, of Jesus, and uh, I learned um, what was true about me and what was true about, about God and um, what would be true about me after I died. And, and I called myself a Christian, and I was. And I progressed through my life, and I became a, a military officer. I became a, a husband. Uh, I became a minister. I became a missionary. I did a lot of, of things in the world. And I got to this point when I was 38 years old um, that I realized I, I, I believed in my head one set of stories about Jesus, and that was true. But the way I was living my life, particularly when it came to my work and my orientation to my work, was I was believing a different story that the world was telling me. And that story was a story that was in contradiction to the story of God. Because the story of God had told me that, you know, my value, my worth, my identity um, came only from one place, and that came from being a beloved son of the king, and that all my sins had been forgiven and I was washed clean and that I had purpose, that I'd been made in the image of God. And I, that was one story and I believed it, but I didn't operate out of that 
story. Instead, I entered into the world, particularly in my work as a 38-year-old man, with a posture of what I'm going to call striving. And that posture of striving meant that uh, deep down, I believed that I had to earn my worth. And so I entered into my relationships in that way and my work in that way. And you know what? It worked out pretty well for a long time. It did. Because that's the story that our world tells us, isn't it? A story that if you, if you work harder, if you make yourself more relevant, that you'll become more valuable and you'll be able to get increasing influence and influence equals things that the world thinks are valuable, like money and position and power and things like that. And so even though I was in a ministry context, uh, the way I was going about my work was with this posture of striving and that I, I really deep down um, wanted to be relevant, wanted to do great things in my ministry, wanted it to be big, wanted people to notice um, so that I could be valuable in the world. And all that came kind of crashing down for me at 38 because I encountered two men who invited me into this idea of exploring my own story. And what they did was they invited me to just simply tell my story to them. And as I told my story, this is where I realized a contradiction that these two stories no, didn't line up. And the way I want to position that for you today is that I was living in the story of both trusting God. There was in one way I trusted God for my salvation and for my life. But in this other way, I was living my life in a posture of striving in the world. And I don't know what you think about those two words, trusting and striving. When I've talked about this to, to friends before, um, some of the feedback I've received is that aren't those both good words in our culture? Trusting, yes, we should trust people, but striving, is that such a bad thing? I mean, isn't that the way that you make a career work? Aren't we called to work hard to make our way in the world? And I hope to reveal to you today as we explore these origin stories of our faith, these deeper stories of our faith, that um, these two are at odds with one another and that we're not made to strive and to make our way in the world, but instead we're made to trust and to move in a posture of trust in the world. Um, just to summarize that period of, of my life, and when we have more time together, I'll be glad to, to share more about that. But I think it's very common that at midlife, and maybe some of you are, are there, some are beyond that, some are heading into that, but at this middle part of your life, uh, it's often a common uh, theme that you reach a crisis moment of identity. And, and I think this is a place where our stories are colliding because things that have brought us to this place in middle life no, can no longer take us into the second half of our life. And so we have conflict. And I don't know where you are with that, but that conflict for me was very painful. And um, it resulted in me leaving the ministry that I was leading in South Africa, not because something went wrong, but just because uh, I was in this deep crisis of of my own identity, and I needed to figure it out, and I needed space to figure that out. And so um, we packed up everything, and we moved to Greenville, South Carolina, uh, where for four years we lived what I call the island years. And maybe you've, you've had um, some years like that in your own journey. And it wasn't a, a physical island. If you've been to Greenville, South Carolina, it's a beautiful place. But for us, it was a relational island, and it was a place where we figured ourselves out and where I really, the work that I did over that next four years was making sense of these two stories. And where I was once again feeling reinvited into this trust story that I want to share with you 
this morning. You see, our stories, I think, are, are like an onion. Uh, I like to think of life that way. You know, if an onion has layers upon layers upon layers, and that's the way stories work too, if you think about it. Uh, and we like these simple stories where there is no onion, where there are no layers, where everything is just one thing and makes sense, but that's just not the way life works. And if you think about your own life, if I think about my life, it works out this way, doesn't it? That I have my story, the things that have happened to Gabe, the events of my history, the relationships that I've had, but that narrative doesn't exist only in isolation. Um, it exists in the context of a, a bigger story of my family of origin. It exists in a bigger story of the country that I grew up in. I don't know how many people love to watch the History Channel. I'm a big History Channel nerd. Um, and if you, if you look and watch uh, History Channel and you study history, you, you know that um, you know, history makes a difference, right? Like it's a context for our lives. And of course, there's a context to the world around us. But ultimately, the biggest part of the onion is uh, there's a story that God is telling. And if you've never thought about your life that way, that your small story exists in layers of other stories, ultimately encapsulated by God's grander story, um, that's the only way to make sense of life in the end. And so it deeply matters uh, which story uh, you're using to find your identity which layer in the onion of your life are you using to find your own identity? And so I want to point us to this outer layer of the onion, the biggest story possible. We just read it, Genesis chapter 2. And Genesis chapter 2, we know, is part of the creation narrative. Um, it's the, the part of the story we, we learn where we came from about first things. But I'd like to submit to you that this is truly a story about relationships, ultimately. It's a story about relationships. It's a story about relationship to, of, of man and woman to themselves, to one another, to the creation world around them, and ultimately their relationship with God. And I want to point us to uh, several aspects uh, that this story points us to of the relationship with God. And so if we'll go, and if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me. We're going to be in chapter 2 for a little bit today. And so we learn that, that God makes the earth and he makes the heavens and he paints this picture that there's not, you know, there's no plant life going on and uh, there's not yet been rain on the land and it says that uh, he makes man and he forms him from the dust of the ground and then it says he breathed the breath of life into the man's nostrils and the man became a living person. And we've talked about this before, but this is a very important aspect of humanity. Uh, when we talked about resurrection uh, a couple of weeks ago, we learned that, you know, people are not made to live in a disembodied state. We're made as uh, created beings made from the earth, made to be in physical bodies. Like there's a big part of us that is a physical being, but then it says that God himself breathes his life into us, and so there's something very unique about us as human beings is that we're part of the created order, uh, that we're from the dust, from the ground itself, that there's a connection there, but also that the breath of life comes from God himself. And so that's the very first part of the story that we need to be aware of is that God is our creator, but not in some abstract way, in a very personal way, in an intimate way. He made you and he made me. And then in verse 8, we learn that the Lord God plants a garden in Eden in the east, and he places the man he had made. 
And kind of the theme I want to point out in this larger story, this context of our lives, um, is that God makes the man, and he, but he makes this place, and he puts the man in the place. And so the first thing that we know is that um, God foreknew the place that the man needed. You notice throughout this that the words, I need, never come from the lips of the man or the woman. It's not in their vocabulary that they need a place. God knows they need a place. And in fact, he creates the most perfect place possible. And I love this image of God viscerally planting this garden in this place called Eden in the east. And he places the man there. And then we learn that he places all kinds of trees and fruit and all the things that the man needs in the garden. If we fast forward uh, to verse 15, we learn secondly that the Lord God places the man in the garden to tend and watch over it. So not only does God give a, a place for the man, but he knows that the man just doesn't need a place, he needs a purpose. The man needs a purpose. And so he creates man for the purpose and he gives him this purpose to be the first farmer to tend the garden and watch over it. Verse 16, the third thing God gives him, but the Lord God warned him, you may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. Well, what is this? It's God giving boundaries to the man. So he knows he needs a place. He knows he needs a purpose, but he knows that he needs boundaries. Dietrich Bonhoeffer pointed out something really interesting, I thought, about this particular part of the story. He said, you know, at the center of the garden is uh, two things. There's a tree of life and there's a tree of knowledge. And what he said was, at the center of the place where God puts the man is he puts the life of God. The life of God is supposed to be at the center of the place where man dwells. But the second thing is he puts man's own finiteness at the center of the garden. What do I mean by that? That man is made with limitations and that, that isn't a bad thing. That man is put in his place and says, you know, you're not meant to know everything. You're not meant to be God. And at the center of this place, at the center of the story that I'm making you for, I'm gonna put these two realities. That at the center of your life is supposed to be my life as your creator God. And at the center of your life in this place, is, is your own finiteness, that you're meant to be a creature of dependence, that you're meant to depend on me alone. And again, remember, the man never says, I need a place, I need a purpose, I need boundaries. God simply knows these things and he gives them to him. And then verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone I will make a helper who is just right for him. He knows that we need community. And it's hilarious. I love the way the text uh, unwinds here. The next verses talk about, so he makes all the animals. I don't know how many people have, have pets at home. And, and pets are great companions, but they're not perfect companions, are they? Um, we have a love-hate relationship with our little toy poodle, dog bulky. Um, mostly I love him and, and Janet's not as much of a fan, um, but he's, he's a, he's a good, good little dog, but he's not the perfect helper. 
And so God uh, goes on in verse 22, the Lord God then made a woman from the rib of the man and brought her to the man. And uh, I love the, the expl- as the man <laughs> realizes the gift that he's been given, this one is bone for my bone, flesh for my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken from man. And so God gives all these beautiful things in this story. And remember, if we think of this story as an origin story that's meant to tell us where we came from, I mean, that's good. But if we think of it as a story that's meant to tell us about our relationships and what our relationship to God is supposed to be like and what our relationship to the world is supposed to be like and what our relationship to each other is supposed to be like, then that opens up a whole another realm of truth for us. Because, because you see, God knew all of these needs for purpose and place and companionship and boundaries. And so he gives these things freely because he's a good God and a generous God. And he gives these things. And then in verse 25, and this is probably the most important verse in chapter two. Now the man and the wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. And there's so much laid in in that verse that we need to talk about this morning. The man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. There's two key words there, nakedness and shame. So let's talk about the first one, nakedness. What is the word nakedness really all about? Well, to be naked means to be exposed, right? It means to be vulnerable. It means to be completely seen, right? There's nothing hidden. And what we learn in the story is that, again, if we think relationally, okay, that we were made to be naked, exposed and vulnerable and completely seen by the God who made us, that we were made to be exposed and vulnerable, um, particularly in the bond of, of marriage, but in human relationship in general, this is the way that we're meant to, to live together. And it's a beautiful image, and it's the story that we were made for. And I don't know if you've ever thought about that before, that this is the story that you were made for. This is the things that we long for. But there's the second word, shame. What does shame mean? Shame means, uh, well, let me put it this way. To be guilty, right, is to do something wrong. And and we're guilty of all kinds of, of things all the time, right, to do something wrong. But to be ashamed means to believe that you are something wrong that there's something fundamentally flawed about who you are as a human being. And I don't know about you, but at different moments in my life story, and most profoundly at that moment I shared with you about when I was 38 years old, um, you know, a marker of crisis moments in our life often is this idea of shame, is that we believe not only that we've done, we know we've done wrong things, but then there's moments where we believe, you know, I'm fundamentally flawed. There's something deeply wrong with me and I can't be fixed. And it leads us into these moments of deep despair because we believe that we're unworthy in the world. And remember that the story of the world says it's up to you to earn your own worthiness, that you better be good enough in your relationships if you wanna be loved. You know, you better be a good enough husband to be loved by your wife. You better be a good enough wife to be loved by your husband. You know, if things aren't going well for you, it's your fault. You should just work harder. You should strive. You should make your own way. 
This is the story of the world. And the reason that it's a deeply depressing story, and I believe why that's such a problem for us in our culture, is because we don't understand this idea that we're made to be exposed and vulnerable in relationships of safety with a God who loves us and with people who know us, and that we're meant to live in a world where there is no shame, where we understand that our core identity is not dependent on the things that we do, but on who we belong to. And we're going to get to that later. How do we overcome the shame? But we know in the beginning, this was the natural state of things, and this was the story that we were made for. Now, I want you to imagine for a minute that the only thing that changed in this story, right? God, God didn't change. The garden didn't change. The only thing that changed was the, the, the man and the woman's posture toward God later. And we're going to get to that part of the story. But I want you to imagine that nothing has changed and that this is the story that you're invited into. If this was the reality of your relationship with God, that you were able to be totally exposed before him, that you felt no shame, that you felt intimate connection, that you felt no need, that your posture toward him in your life was a posture of trust, that you could trust him for everything that you needed. Just imagine that for a moment, that in your life right now, the things that you need, that you know you need, that maybe you cry out to God, I need this, I need that, I long for something, but imagine that he already knows all that and that he sees you fully and that he's trustworthy, how would that change the way that you view God? How would that change the way that you live? How would that change the way you view yourself? Ultimately, how would that make you feel if you knew that you could trust God with everything? Because the reality is God has not changed. He has not changed. He is still trustworthy and true. The same God who provided the garden, who planted the garden in the east, the same God who provided purpose before the people knew it. How much of our lives do we spend thinking, what is my purpose? And maybe some of you are at a point in your life where you're thinking through that right now. What is my purpose? What am I made for? I have to figure it out. And often I think we believe that God is a carnival master with three solo cups and a ping pong ball, ping pong ball under one of them, and he's shuffling them, and he's saying, just pick the right one, just pick the right one, and if you pick the right cup and you get the, the ball, then your life will go well. But if you don't pick it, your, your, your life will be messed up. I think we view God that way sometimes, but just imagine for a moment that you believe God and that he was exactly the same as he is in Genesis 2, how would that make you feel? Well, why is this so hard for us to believe that this is God, a trustworthy God who knows our needs, who provides all that we need before we see it? Why is that so hard for us to embrace? It's because there are no simple stories. It's because there's not just chapter 2, there's chapter 3. And we're not going to read all the way through chapter 3, but I want to give you a synopsis. Because we know that, unfortunately, the story doesn't end at verse 25, that the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. That uh, chapter 3 begins, there was a serpent, was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. And one day he asked the woman, did God really say, you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? And so what we have is we have introduced into the story a deceiver, 
one who questions the trustworthiness of God for the very first time. God is questioned, and it won't be the last. And so they enter into this dialogue, and the serpent continues to deceive the woman, and then the woman and the man are both deceived, and it says that ultimately they took some of the fruit. Remember the tree at the middle, the tree of knowledge, the tree of human limitations, they take the fruit and they eat it. Why? Because they want to be like God because they've been deceived into thinking that the original story isn't true or good enough, that there's a better story somewhere out there, that God isn't who he says he's going to be. And so we see for the very first time this alternative story of the world that invites us into a life that is better than the one that God can provide. And it says, at that moment when they eat this fruit, their eyes were opened, and suddenly, and this is the key text, suddenly they felt shame at their nakedness. And here we are again, our two words, nakedness and shame. And so we don't know what time period this is, but in the story, it's very close together. It's two stories that are right next to each other. And it's two stories that we're living in that make our lives incredibly complex. But we know that the man and the woman move from this place of having everything they need provided by a God who knows them intimately and sees them and provides all that they need before they say a word. And in an instant, there's a deceit. There's an alternative story that invites them to an alternate reality that says there's something better out there, that God isn't trustworthy, that it's better you find your own way in the world. Does that sound familiar? You see, because the world hasn't stopped generating alternative stories that invite you to be deceived that God isn't who he says he is, that he can't be trusted, that he doesn't know that what you need, and that you better make your way on your own. And maybe some of you are believing that story or one of those stories like that today. I know I've believed stories like that. And when I was 38 years old at that crisis point in my life, I was deeply believing a lie of the world that it was all up to me. And I had to make my way on my own and the weight was crushing. And you know what I felt? I felt naked. I felt exposed because deep down I knew that I don't have what it takes. If it's all up to me, I'm sunk. And maybe some of you have felt that way too, like you're just waiting to be found out, that you're just not enough. Maybe you deeply resonate with this idea of being exposed and feeling the weight of that. And here's the second word. They felt shame at their nakedness. And so they felt for the very first time, not only that they had done a wrong thing, but that they were fundamentally flawed, that they were wrong at the core of their being. Maybe some of you are feeling that way right now because you've been deceived believing a story of the world that says you better craft your own identity, you better make your own significance, and really you feel exposed and vulnerable and you feel ashamed. 
And so how did they respond? It says the very next verse, without missing a beat, they said, so they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. And here's what I want to introduce is a, a, a theme. Um, I'm going to call this striving syndrome because this is the way that we respond when we realize that we're exposed and when we believe it's all up to us and we believe that God's not on our side, then we're only left to our own devices to figure life out, make our own way in the world. And it's a posture of striving and it's a way of entering into every human relationship and into our work and into every part of our life. And so the striving syndrome has three parts that are unpacked in verses seven through 10 in chapter three. And the first one is covering. As you see, they, they try to cover their nakedness, but they cover it with fig leaves. How comical is that? Have you seen a fig leaf? It's, it's not a great device for covering oneself, particularly in vulnerable areas. I can't imagine sewing fig leaves together. You see, they take something that they can put their hands on and they try to cover their own exposure. And you know, the truth is we've been doing the same thing ever since. It's just, we don't do it with fig leaves, do we? We, we cover ourselves with success. We say, you know, I'm, I'm really naked and exposed and I know I'm not good enough. And I actually don't think very much of myself, but you know, if I just kind of can create enough value in the world and big, build enough wealth and build enough relationship and significance, I can cover that. And, and maybe you won't see me for who I really am and you'll be deceived and I'll be safe. We cover in all kinds of different ways. We cover with humor. We cover with being in charge and taking power. We cover by putting ourselves at the center of our story and saying, I can do it. I don't need you, God. Just leave me alone. I've got this. But there's more than that. It says, verse 8, when the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden, so they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Now, uh, I believe that this is a theophany. A theophany is a, um, an appearance of the Lord Jesus um, before he comes in the incarnation. And so I think this is the Lord Jesus walking in the garden with the first man and the first woman. We know it's God and it's, he's somehow an embodied form and they hear him rustling and walking and they know it's him. And think back to chapter two. In chapter two, when they would hear God walking, they would run to him as their creator, as the one who provided everything. And they would approach him with joy. But this time it says that their orientation to God is hiding. Why? Because they're ashamed. And so they hid. And we've been hiding ever since. You see, we've been covering and we've been hiding, and maybe that's you. Maybe that's the way you think about God right now, is, is, is someone to be afraid of, someone who's after you. And so you should hide from him. And so we don't approach God, and we don't pray, and we don't really want to be intimate with him because we're afraid that he might find us out, and we don't really believe that he's good. And the last part of our striving syndrome, not only are we covering and hiding, but we're living in fear.
the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. I don't know what this looks like in your life, but you see, there are no simple stories, and we live between these two stories as Christians. As Christians, we're invited into the Genesis 2 story. I'm going to get to how that works here in a second. But we're invited to this reality that there's a God who loves us, who desires intimate relationship with us, who desires to give us everything that we need and to create ultimately a place for us to live with him for eternity. And this is followers of Jesus. This is our reality. And it's the reality that we're supposed to show up in the world with every day and think if, if that's our reality, how do we get to show up in our marriages as free people, not, not needing identity from a husband or a wife, but free to simply love if we're coming from a Genesis 2 story? How do you get to show up to your work if your orientation to life is Genesis 2, that all that you need is provided for you, that's God himself who's gifted you and given you purpose and invitation to significance in the world, then you get to show up at your work free to love and to serve others instead of taking and consuming. That's the story that we were made for. But the reality is we're invited to this Genesis 2 story, but we live in a Genesis 3 world. We do. We live as a people of exile in the world because we've been cast out of the garden. I want to finish this way, and we're going to move to communion. And I'm going to, I'm going to finish the sermon down here at the communion table because the question is, how is this possible? How do we live a Genesis 2 story where you're invited to live out of complete exposure and vulnerability, intimate love relationship with the God who made you, but in a Genesis 3 world where the lies are swirling all around you, where the vultures are circling, where everything you hear is a contradiction to that story. And the answer, of course, is the same one who walked in the cool of the day is the same one who came and walked the earth. And his name is Jesus. And I want to read from you from the text of Hebrews chapter 10, which makes sense of all these stories. Verse 11, under the old covenant, the priest stands and ministers before the altar day after day, offering the same sacrifices again and again, which can never take away sins. You see, it's more covering in the Old Testament ways, people had to cover their sins with blood of animals. In fact, that's foreshadowed in that last part of Genesis. It says the last thing that God does before he cast him out of the garden, it says he killed the first animals and he covered the man and the woman with skins, making the first sacrifice. And it was a foreshadowing of the thing to come and that for centuries upon centuries, People tried to cover their sin and their nakedness, but it could not take away their sins. But our high priest offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins, good for all time. And when sins have been forgiven, there is no need to offer any more sacrifices. 
And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him. There it is, fully trusting him. For our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean and our bodies have been washed with pure water and let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm for God can be trusted to keep his promise.